We've been working through a sermon series in, in 2 Samuel, and that's where we're going to continue today. But let me, let me pray and ask the Lord's guidance. Lord Jesus, this is a, a big text. There's just so much to, that could be covered in these four chapters that were available to us this week. And, and Lord, we can't talk about everything, but I pray that you would bless um, the things that I have to share, that you would, um, you would honor the work, that, that my brothers and sisters would be encouraged and also challenged, um, that we would be driven towards you, seeking mercy and grace as we prepare to come to the table today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As I said, we've been working through First Samuel. We'll be moving on to Second Samuel in a few weeks, but, but we are at a point in this this. this this, this historical moment where David and his men have been on the run for nearly a decade. I mean, over and over and over again, the Lord has fulfilled his promise to protect him. Over and over again, the Lord has delivered David from the hands of Saul, but yet David is exhausted. He's exhausted. And so I want you to follow along with me. We're not going to stand for the reading this week. We're going to read the text throughout the sermon. But I want you to follow along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're just going to begin with verses 1 and 2. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer. With the borders of, within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, the king of Goth. Now, I'd like, uh, if you, uh, Dawn, if you would pull up the map for everybody. Um, you see Goth is just below the tribe of Dan, okay? I don't know if you remember from a few weeks ago, but Goth is the hometown of Goliath, who David had had killed in battle 15 or so years earlier. And now he's running to the Philistines in Goth for for protection against King Saul. And you can leave the map up here. But it appears that even though the Lord had repeatedly promised, and we know that he did so through through, uh, Jonathan, through Samuel, and through his wife Abigail, even the Lord had repeatedly promised that he would protect David, Even the Lord had repeatedly fulfilled that promise by delivering David from the hand of Saul over and over again. David is convinced that if he doesn't get out of Israel, um, that he will, in his words, perish. And so he left Israel and he sought refuge amongst the enemies of Israel. He sought refuge amongst the Philistines. And it worked. At that point, Saul stopped pursuing him. And then David and his men were somehow able to, they were embraced by Achish, the the king of the Philistines. And then Achish gave him a place to live, a a place of refuge down in Ziklag, which is down in the um, southwest part, just above Simeon. Kind of a more wilderness area. So David and, and these 600 men were able to go live out there and just find refuge there. And the text tells us that they, they lived there for 16 months. And now, moving on, if you get to verse 8 and 9, it says that while they were there, while David and these 600 men were there, it says, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. 
And David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive. But he would take away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments. And then he would come back and bring to Achish his share of the loot. Now, if you, if you read the passage on your own, like I try to encourage you to, you'll see that while Achish thinks that David is, is raiding and, and bringing back the, the, the loot from the towns of Judah... Um, the southern Judah, while he thinks that David is raiding the the tribes of the Israelites and bringing back um, the loot to him, what David is actually doing is he's secretly working for his fellow Israelites. He's fooling King Achish. He is raiding, and what he's doing is he is raiding, and, and he is raiding the roaming band of raiders who habitually raid the Lord's people. He is attacking the the likes of the Amalekites. I don't know if you remember, several weeks back we saw that the Amalekites were so evil and so cruel that God commanded Saul to wipe them out and annihilate them completely. Man, woman, child, and infant. We talked about that. Go back and listen to that sermon if you weren't here. But remember, Saul refused to do it, so they're still around. These are the kinds of people that David's attacking. Um... What David's actually doing, he's not just killing the men, but he's also killing the women. And we don't know that he wasn't, but there is nothing in our passage that indicates that David had been directed by the Lord to do so. In fact, in verse 11, I think it is, the author tells us that the reason David did this was in order to keep the activity secret from, from Achish so that he couldn't, so people could, so that nobody was left alive to go back and tell Achish that he wasn't attacking the Israelites, but he's attacking, attacking the, the, the Amalekites. The fact is, what David was doing was, even for the custom of its time, over the top. It's one thing to raid those who raid, it's one thing to raid a bunch of raiders, but it is an entirely different thing to kill not just the men but also the the women I mean David has become a butcher I don't think I'm alone in that things like this are hard to read things like this when we read these things it's hard to reconcile it's hard to understand And, and what makes this story even more difficult is that it doesn't even mention the Lord or even give us the, the, the Lord's point of view. In, in fact, even the writer refrains from offering any sort of moral inventory. Or moral commentary. But let me be very clear about something. While the writer does not give us all the information or all the context that we would like to have. Although he doesn't offer any sort of moral commentary or condemn what David did. There's no reason for us to interpret his silence as approval. Right? Now, if that's the case, then how is David's activity supposed to be evaluated here? Let's look at just two issues. First, it could easily be argued, and it has been argued by some, that David was wrong for failing to trust in the Lord's repeated promises of protection. That instead of taking refuge in, in those promises, he found his refuge 
in the Lord's enemies, the Philistines of all people. Um, it has been argued that, that what we see here in David is a lack of faith. And you know what? I, just kind of resting in this passage this, this last week, I, I kind of think that very well may be the case. But here's an important principle that, for us, that, that when reading scriptures, if the text does not comment on it, then any comments that we might make or any conclusions that we might want to come to should be at the very least laced with a great deal of caution. And here's another thing. We should never lose sight of the fact that these were real people living real lives. We, we must never lose the sight of the fact that life is complicated Life is almost always incredibly complex. We got to remember that, that this was a, a very, very dark time in, in David's life. It had been years since those promises had been given to him. And David and his men had been living in constant danger for nearly a decade. And it wasn't just David and his band of merry men. David, along with most of those men, had families to consider. I mean, whenever Saul would get into that, his depressed or, or paranoid or panicked states, he was capable of doing some pretty bizarre things. So who knows what Saul might be able to do to their wives or their children? It, it, is, really, it is hard for us to imagine how incredibly difficult it must have been to live with that kind of pressure. That kind of responsibility for so many people weighing on him for so long. You know, while these stories make for interesting reads or even great movies, the reality of these stories have a way of taking a toll on real people. While it does appear that David can be argued that David lacked faith in the promises of God to protect him. We've got to remember that life is always complex. Life is always complicated. And, it, and, and, and therefore, life always requires a great deal of wisdom. And, and wisdom always requires nuance. I, I was just thinking about it in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, when he sent out the, the disciples on their first missionary journey... He told them, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And <laughs> that's, a ne that's never an easy balance to strike. It's just not. In, in the pastor's meeting this week, um, we were talking about this, and, and somebody said, listen, there's two kinds of fools in the world. The first kind of fool is, that, is one who says that there is no right and wrong. And what makes them so foolish is that they are out of touch with reality. But there is also a second kind of fool, and that is one who says that there is only right and wrong, that there is no ambivalence in life. And to think that every situation has a black and white answer is, is also to be out of touch with reality. It is also to be foolish. A wise person understands 
that more often than not, life does not have clear and concise answers. It just doesn't. A wise person understands that there is seldom a clear sense of right and wrong. They understand that the context which we find ourselves living in is also almost always gray and almost always requires from us an incredible amount of wisdom. You know, I was thinking about it. This is true during election cycles. And, oh my gosh, it feels like we were just getting over the last couple we've had, and now we got another one coming. And the reality is, it's never just black and white. A wise person understands that the issues are complex and they're complicated. And, and, and sometimes we vote by picking the lesser of two evils. It's true regarding how we handle our money. The Bible's very clear that a wise person saves up for a rainy day, saves up for, for the future, saves up as, as a cushion. But the Bible is just as clear that we are to trust in the Lord. We are not to put our hope and trust into worldly treasures. Both of these things are true at the same time. And it takes wisdom to keep these truths in balance with one another. And it's not always the same for everyone. Life is hard. Life is complicated. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. How many people know it? Raise your hand if you know it. And I bet you, I bet you in a second more of you are going to raise your hand. Say it with me. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I want you to notice, it does not say, don't use your understanding. But rather, it says, don't lean on your own understanding. You see, we are to lean on the Lord and use our understanding. We're not to lean on our own understanding and then use the Lord. See, life requires wisdom. I think we see this very thing in our passage today. I mean, was it a, a lack of faith for David to seek refuge among the Philistines? I think perhaps. Yet even in that context, the Lord doesn't waver. The Lord continues to bless David. So, so that's the first thing I want to talk about. The, the second thing I want to talk about, let's talk about this brutal slaughtering of not just men, but even of women. And I want to begin by once again saying, confessing that, that David is a complicated figure. Early on in my Christian walk, I, I remember, I was living in Omaha, Nebraska, I remember reading these passages and I found myself feeling angry. And at least, at the very least, frustrated with David. And, and, and as I dug, I found that my anger and my frustration wasn't really so much at David, but it was at the Lord. I mean, it's easy to see why God rejected Saul. He's unfaithful, he's prideful, he's arrogant. I mean, and so I get that. But how can the Lord continually choose to support, sustain, protect, and align himself with somebody who butchers people like this? There's a very real sense in which we are endeared to David, but then he goes off and he does something like this. 
You know, I, I think this is intentional by the writer. The writer of First and Second Samuel writes in a way that evokes in his readers a, a, a certain amount of sympathy and understanding for David, but at the same time, he does not try to hide how calculating and ruthless David can be towards his enemies. Nor does he offer any sort of justification for David's behavior. He just doesn't. And I think what the biblical writer's doing here is he's making sure that his readers don't fall into the trap of hero worship. He's making sure that, that, that we don't fall in the trap of exalting someone like David more highly than we should. He wants us to see that while David is an anointed servant of God, he also is made out of the same stuff that the rest of us are made out of. He's also embattled by sin. And he is also somebody who is in need of that salvation. The other one is to see that while David does indeed have a special role or a special niche in, in salvation history, um, he also shares in the need for that salvation. If, if you were to take the time, and I encourage you to do this if you can, if you were to take the time to go back and read what we've read so far, because we're basically to the end of 1 Samuel. Go back and read 1 Samuel again. And I think you will see that the writer refuses to allow his readers to, to, to view Saul with purely contempt, but he also refuses to allow his readers to, to view David with only admiration. Because again, there's just no getting around it. Life is messy. Life is complicated. And the living God never has clean material to work with. I was reading Dale Ralph Davis, one of the commentaries that I've been using. Listen to what he writes. He says, as long as we wallow, however subtly, in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible. Never tremble before this God and never delight in this God. We must get a grip on grace. And I think this passage is designed to point us to that truth. Right? So it's kind of strange. I got almost like I got a two, two different sermons today. I want us to switch now and I want us to, to look at Saul in chapter 28. Um, if you pull the map up again, you'll see that, that while David and his men are living down south in Ziklag, up north where the circle is, um, in, up in that area, Achish, the king of the Philistines, has gathered his military forces and he's preparing to attack Israel. And, uh, and you'll see just above that is where Endor is. And so David's on the south side. The, the Philistines are on the north side, so to get where David wants to go, he's got, he's got to take a big risk. He's got to go out and around the Philistine army, all right? Follow along with me in 1 Samuel chapters 28, verse 5 through 8. It says, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was greatly afraid. He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, he said, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. 
And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium in Endor. You're going to have to go out and around the Philistines to get to her. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now what's interesting is that, that not long before this, perhaps on one of his good days, perhaps in an effort to, to be faithful to the commands of the Lord and to please the Lord, it, we're told in verse, the second half of verse 3 that, that Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. He had thrown these people out of the land and, and shut down the, the, these, these practices. of and, and, and basically what he did was he instituted the commands of God that are found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Look at this with me. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 14, God said this to the people. He said, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a chalmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Then he goes on to say, And the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So it appears on Saul's good day, he tries to, to follow and do what the, the Lord has commanded him to do. <clears throat> now this woman knows that Saul, the king, she doesn't know Saul yet, but she knows the king has just recently banned her from, from her practice. Rather than leaving, it appears she stayed in the land, but she just stopped. And when these strangers come to her, uh, she thinks, well, this may be a trap. And so she's reluctant to do what they ask, but... But they convince her to do it anyways. And, and they ask her to bring up Samuel who has recently died. And then when she actually does it, when Samuel actually appears, she's terrified. And she puts two and two together and figures out this is King Saul standing in front. The, the, the guy standing in her living room is King Saul, the one who had banned her from her practice. But Saul assures her that she's safe. And, and to certify the extent of his hypocrisy, in, in verse 10, he, he swears by the Lord. He swears on the Lord's very life that no punishment would come upon her for doing that which the Lord forbids. That, that, that nothing would happen to her for doing that which the Lord calls an abomination, that the Lord calls wicked. Saul swears on the Lord's life. I mean, his hypocrisy is, is, is astonishing. Now, when she tells Saul that Samuel really is there, Saul bows down to the ground before him. And then Saul... Samuel says to Saul, look at with me in verse 28, 15 through 19. It says, then Samuel speaks to Saul and he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answered, answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And then Samuel says this to him. He says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. 
For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, and he has given it to your neighbor David. And then in verse 19, he says, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. In other words, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be dead. What is clear here is that the Philistines have mounted a fierce and formidable attack, and, and Saul is not just afraid, he is greatly afraid. He's trembling. And there is a genuine sense in which Saul really does want to hear from the Lord. He is crying out for the Lord's direction. But he doesn't get it. And since the Lord refuses to give him what he wants, he quickly goes elsewhere. Even if it means turning to that which the Lord Forbids to that which the Lord calls wicked. I think it's important for us to see that while Saul does indeed cry out for the Lord's direction, this has been a long journey, and, and what we really need to see is that he is not crying out for the Lord himself. He wants the benefit, but he doesn't want the Lord. I want to take a couple minutes to address what I think is a fairly common question that people often ask. And people will say, was this just a bunch of fakery? Or was it real? Did Samuel really cross over from the other side? Is that possible? Or is there some other explanation? Let me say this, the text seems to suggest that this really was the spirit of Samuel. You know, the scriptures describe this kind of stuff not as futile, but as pagan. It appears that the Lord forbids these kinds of practices not because they don't work, but because they are wicked. So the text does seem to indicate that this really was Saul come back from the dead, that Saul has crossed over, or Samuel. But I want you to notice a couple things that are important in this. In this process, Saul receives no new direction. Samuel only tells him what he had been told before. That the Lord has turned from him and become his enemy. That the Lord has torn the kingdom out of his hand and given it to David. The third thing I want you to see is that while it does appear to have really happened, the author describes it in a way that offers no new how-to information, no new insight into and how-to information for anyone who might be an aspiring necromancer. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm sure that there are some in this room who have in the past gone to a fortune teller. I'm sure there's some people here in this room who in the past have had their palm read or, or done some sort of tarot card reading. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember my cousins had 
um, a magic eight ball down in the toy box in their basement, and we used to play with that. Uh, my neighbor Lisa had an Ouija board, and we used to, um, on a few occasions, we played with that a couple of times. And I, I remember one night when, when our parents were playing Pinochle, the neighbor kids got, were in Lisa's bedroom, and, and we decided to have a seance. And I don't know why it's a little embarrassing, but we decided, I don't know why, we decided we were going to call up the spirit of Dracula. <laughs> I remember that. I, I don't know why. I don't know who suggested it. Um, and uh, anyways, when it was over, and when we turned the lights on, um, Lisa's styrofoam cup that she'd been drinking Kool-Aid out of had two bite marks in it. And then there were always the horoscopes that were published in the local newspaper that we used to read. And while all these things appeared to me at the time, and while they may appear to some of you, even today, to be innocent, silly, or harmless forms of entertainment, and, and while I did these things out of ignorance, it does not mean that the Lord does not consider them to be wicked. We should be careful that we do not call good or innocent, entertaining or harmless what the Lord calls evil. You know, if I were a betting man, and I am, I'd be willing to bet that I'm not alone. I would be willing to bet that my past experiences are not unique. And if you have ever participated in such things, you really should take the time to repent of that, to ask the Lord's forgiveness and to ask for the Lord's protection. And here's something else I'd be willing to bet on. I would bet that even though the vast majority of people in this room are probably in agreement with me on this, this subject, um... I'd be willing to bet on that near, even though nearly everybody in this room may very well be, I, I'd also, here's the, although I, I think the mass majority would agree with me on this subject, I would also be willing to bet that nearly everybody in this room may very well be more guilty of these kinds of things than what we think. I think we may be guilty of these things more than we realize or more than we've ever thought that we are. And now allow me to suggest just two possibilities that you might never have thought about yourself. First, while we may not be in the business of necromancy, we may not be in the business of consulting mediums, how many of us have settled ourselves into being okay with the absence of the Lord's word, with the absence of the Lord's direction in our lives. How many of us settled ourselves into being okay with what so often feels like the Lord's silence?
my bet is that there is much for us to repent of in regard to this. There's one more I want us to think about, and I know we have this strong tendency to to look at people in the ancient Near East and we have this temptation to think that that we aren't faced with the, the kinds of things that they were faced with. This, these, this isn't an issue for us. We're not going to necromancers. We're not going to fortune tellers. But let me ask this question. Think about this. If someone woke up from a 25-year coma... How would you explain or what would they think of your cell phone? Just think about it with me for a minute. Technology of the modern world that we do not understand, that is beyond our understanding, functions very much like magic did in the ancient world. While it's true that most of us in this room would never turn to a psychic, would never go down to the Palm Reader on South Florida Avenue, how quickly and how often do we turn to Google before turning to the Word of the Lord? I have been a pastor for 30 years and I continue to be deeply, deeply convicted at how comfortable I am with the Lord's silence. How quickly I am to turn to other sources than to the Lord and to the Lord's word. And because I'm a betting man, I'm willing to bet that I'm not alone in this. You know, as we prepare to come to the table today, I guess what I really wanted to do is I want us to be reminded that our issues are far deeper than what we realize. We need God's grace and God's mercy far more than what we realize. And my hope is that we work towards this new year that we as a church body can collectively seek the Lord's direction that we would not be satisfied with his silence and that we would find it in his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we are guilty on multiple levels.
All of us can think of things that we are looking to and trusting in more than we are looking to and trusting in you. And Lord, we confess that to you right now. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.